Welcome to New Books and Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to Shannon Gleason, who's the author of Conflicting Commitments, The Politics of Enforcing Immigrant Worker Rights in San Jose and Houston. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Shannon, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Shannon, you've written this really interesting book called Conflict, uh, Conflicting Commitments, The Politics of Enforcing Immigrant Worker Rights in San Jose and Houston. Before we get to the actual meat of the book, maybe we can talk a little bit about who you are and what your background is. And in doing so, um, you write at the very start of the book that, quote, the seeds of this book were planted over a decade ago in O'Connor Hall. So where is O'Connor Hall and how did O'Connor Hall lead you on this 10-year path to write this book? Sure. Um, so Connor Hall is the building where the sociology and anthropology departments are located at Santa Clara University, um, where I was an undergraduate. And I attribute a lot of my interest in what I'm currently researching to those years, um, largely in, in because of the mentors that I had there and also just I feel like um, that was a kind of a period in my life where I had to decide whether or not I was going to head down a path of research in academia or a more applied route. Um, I think I, at one point, found myself in one of my mentor's offices trying to decide um, in real concerted fashion whether or not I was going to apply for a master's of social work or go on to a PhD. And so I think it was through kind of the undergraduate classes I took in sociology and kind of uncovering that I had um, an interest in doing research that I ended up where I am here today. But um, I don't necessarily think that that would have happened without the mentorship that I had um, at that at that university. Yeah, and and where are you now today? Sure, I'm I'm now an associate professor of Latin American and Latino studies at the University of California Santa Cruz. Um, we're located on the central coast of California, about an hour and a half south of San Francisco. And our department is an interdisciplinary one that attempts to bring together um, perspectives from both Latin America as well as um, trying to understand the experiences of Latinos living in the United States. And so we're a pretty unique department, and um, I'm pretty lucky to have an interdisciplinary context in which to do my work. Yeah, you know, and, and the, the sort of the, the broad headline of this, this podcast project is political science, but, but I'm so fortunate to have people who, who write about politics from other perspectives and other fields, and you come at this subject matter, this very political subject matter as a sociologist, um, and, and so some of the terminology used is, is similar to what political scientists use, but a little bit different. And so I, I wanted to get started talking about one of the terms that you use to really set up your approach for the book. And so you use this term, uh, political field, mm-hmm. um, which, which is not a, a term that typically is in political science, but clearly relates in some ways. So if you might, um, introduce us to this, this uh, term, political field. Sure, and I'll try my best here to summon some of my Bourdieu, but really the work on political fields most recently, I think, has been done by folks looking at the function of social movements. So I draw on work by Raka Ray, who looks at the at women's movements in India, and also Neil Flixing and Doug McAdam, who are both um, economic sociologists at Stanford and at Berkeley, who are interested in what they refer to as strategic action fields. And what, what I find useful about the idea of a political field is, uh, is two things. One, it gets us away from a, a model approach that requires us to identify, um, you can say, independent variables a priori and really kind of thinks about the co-constitutive effects of, of political spaces. Um, and the other thing that I find useful about the concept is that it identifies these meso-level institutions 
such as civil society organizations, as important both in terms of determining um, political action by elites as well as the, um, the action of individuals on the ground. And so I use the term political field to try to assess what is different on, in terms of both the political culture as well as the policy policies that are in place in these two case studies. And the idea of a political field is that we can only understand the actions of these organizations. In the case, in this case, I'm looking at three um, basic sets of uh, organizations or, uh, or institutions that are involved in the enforcement of immigrant worker rights, bureaucratic government enforcement agencies, local government entities, civil society organizations, and, Mexican, and the Mexican consulate by trying to understand how they carry out the process of immigrant worker rights enforcement in relation to each other. So it's really this relational approach to understanding organizational behavior um, that I find useful. Yeah, the, and, and immigrant rights really at the center of this book, and, and you set up a, a couple of the um, important um, legal decisions that, that set the sort of the, the legal foundation under which these different participants are trying to implement, do, work on various stages of implementation. So one of the, one of the key cases, the 2002 Hoffman versus uh, uh, the NL, NLRB uh, Supreme Court case. Um, uh, what did Hoffman change for worker rights? And, and how did the bureaucracy seek to implement these changes brought about by Hoffman? Sure. So um, the the 2002 Supreme Court Hoffman Classics really, um, in many ways, is a watershed event that dates back to the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act. And what made um, the Hoffman decision distinct from previous decisions, such as a decision that was rendered in 1982 called Shurtan, is that now um, the issue of what remedies immigrant workers had available to them had to be assessed in relation to the new policy that the 1986 IRCA Act put in place, which was called you know, the idea of employer sanctions. And prior to 1986, um, most of us remember 1986 IRCA as a time where um, amnesty or a legalization program was put in place for nearly 3 million undocumented immigrants. Um, but the compromise that was made alongside that amnesty was the policy of employer sanctions, which prohibits the hiring of uh, undocumented or unauthorized immigrants and put in place um, penalties supposedly for employers. So what it said is that employers were no longer, le- no longer legally able to hire unauthorized immigrants and uh, without getting it too much into the detail, this just dates back to a, a 1950 compromise that allowed um, the idea of employing undocumented immigrants to not be considering, considered harboring. So fast forward to um, 2002, and you have a situation where there was um, an undocumented construction worker who had been fired for union organizing. And under the National uh, Labor Relations Act, the um, this is protected activity. Um, and NLRA, as well as um, several other stat- labor protection statutes, had for a very long time um, rendered their protections to all workers, regardless of immigration status. But because now we have the 1986 employer sanctions provisions in place, the typical remedies that were available for workers who had been illegally fired were no longer um, available. So originally the National Labor Relations Board had ruled in favor of Castro, the the plaintiff, um, and this got appealed by Hoffman Plastics all the way up to the Supreme Court decision, which ultimately decided that although the um, employer had acted outside the bounds of its 
rights under the National Labor Relations Act, the typical remedy of back pay and reinstatement were no longer available. So this is why you have now a, a state that legal scholars refer to as rights without remedies. In other words, employers are still technically required to abide by the same protections provide the same protections to undocumented as well as documented workers, but now because of employer sanctions provisions and the 2002 Hoffman Process decisions, they're not eligible in many cases for the same back pay and reinstatement remedies. And so to your question of how bureaucracies responded to this, um, it really in many ways limited the types of remedies they were able to offer to undocumented immigrants, but as I argue in the book and I have elsewhere, it didn't necessarily change their um, willingness to enforce the rights of all workers with, uh, regardless of, uh, of, of immigration status would have constrained their ability to provide their remedies because it's in their interest to be able to protect the rights of all workers. But now with Hoffman in place, it created a much more difficult environment, federal environment for them to be able to do so. And like with so many of these, these federal issues, they're, they're ultimately played out on the most local of local levels yep. and, and that, that ends up setting up sort of your, much of your approach in the book, which is to focus on these two different places, San Jose and Houston. So what drew you to these two cases? What's, what's special or, or perhaps not special um, about San Jose and Houston that, that led you to choose them as, as the case studies of the book? Sure. Well, San Jose and Houston, um, apart from being two places um, where I had developed quite a bit of research um, experience, um, also I think to me represent two well, uh, Singer, Audrey Singer refers to as traditional immigrant destinations, that is, two large cities where um, especially Latino immigration has had a long history. Um, so these are two places where you have very similar economic and demographic profiles. Um, you have the characteristic urban sprawl in both places with, a suburb, with an urban core, a semi-urban core, and then a, a suburban surrounding. Um, you have both high-skilled immigrants as well as low-skilled immigrants who are um, providing many of the services to this kind of bifurcated economy. But I also wanted to be able to compare two similarly situated economically and demographically situated cities um, who didn't necessarily have the same policies in place. And I didn't want to compare apples and oranges. Um, we could think of many places in the in the New South where we have seen large numbers of Latin immigration um, settle and, and big disputes over how to incorporate them. But I wanted to identify two cities where the policies surrounding both immigrant integration as well as labor rights were distinct. And so I felt that many of the cities where we've already done research, um, New York and L.A. being two of the largest, um, provided very unique cases for understanding how this has played out given, to the, given the very unique um, kind of political structure in those places as well as the, civil, the evolution of civil society. Um, so San Jose and Houston, to me, represented two places that um, were subject to very different state policy structures and had very unique um, po uh, political cultures. Now, I am careful not to over... Over, overly characterize either of these two cities. San Jose um, is in Silicon Valley and kind of has a very unique flavor of, of West Coast um, liberal democracy. Um, and on the other hand, Houston, although Texas as a whole kind of suffers from this um, stereotype of being very conservative, is also a global city. So civil society is, uh, immigrant civil society is strong um, in both places, but what differs is that as are as is the dedication of union members in both places, but what differs is that relative to business interests 
and to anti-immigrant and nativist forces, um, those advocates who are interested in immigrant worker rights have a much harder time of pursuing their objectives in Houston. And I wanted to see how, given those different as you might call political fields, um, immigrant worker advocates were carrying out the work that they wanted to do. Yeah, and these differences are really fascinating. Um, you write about San Jose and the, what you call the lawyering approach, uh, which, which is much more prevalent in San Jose than in, than in Houston. So what is the lawyering approach, and, and who, are the, who are the leaders in San Jose as a result of this approach being much more um, prevalent there? Right. And so, you know, just to be, to be clear, one of the things I was very interested in um, in uncovering is how the issue of transferring rights on the books, that is the fact that undocumented workers have just as many rights to, for example, get paid, um, to have safe um, working conditions, et cetera, how that actually gets translated in practice. And um, I, I draw on this concept of lawyering, which was developed with, by Jennifer Gordon, who's written about this um, concept of suburban sweatshops um, in her book, 2007 book. And the lawyering approach is the idea of pursuing formal claims making via the legal bureaucracy. And so if we think about the resources that are necessary to do so, you need a, a bureaucracy that um, advocates and workers themselves can be confident is going to, to work for them. And you also need a set of what I call institutional intermediaries or bureaucratic brokers who will, can help shepherd some of the most vulnerable workers through that process. So if you are limited English proficient, if you are newly arrived in this country, and if you are probably not so thrilled about showing up to a federal building to um, file a wage death claim, um, San Jose in many cases, in many ways, has all the resources that nonetheless allow you to go through the formal bureaucracy. So in the state of California, um, we have a very strong labor commissioner although it has many flaws. But relative to other um, states, we have some of the most stringent protections in the labor code. And the state bureaucracy here in California takes um, a much stronger role in the, in the process of enforcing wage and hour claims and in other places. And so the reason I, um, I argued the lawyering approach um, really thrives in San Jose is because you have a state bureaucracy, not only a federal bureaucracy, but a state bureaucracy that is, um, has inscribed many of the rights for undocumented workers directly into the labor code. So the labor code says very explicitly in response to Hoffman Plastics that it um, um, upholds the rights of all immigrants with, without regard to immigration status. In addition, you also have a very well-developed um, labor advocacy community, both in terms of unions as well as um, its affiliate organizations. And probably most importantly, there's a well-developed legal advocacy community. So pro bono lawyers who are available to help pursue these claims. And so that's what I characterize as the lawyering approach in San Jose. And conversely, um, the reason that approach is simply not tenable is that all of those factors that are present in San Jose are not um, available to the same extent in Houston. The state bureaucracy is centralized in the city of Austin um, with only 24 field officers to cover the entire state. So if you're an undocumented immigrant living in Houston and you need to file a claim, you're really um, more likely to go through the federal bureaucracy. And that is not necessarily always an individual's favorite thing to do. Um, and it also is, uh, it, it also reflects the, the lack of union power in in Houston, we have a very dedicated, though small, Central Labor Council that has worked with um, many fierce labor advocates, but 
relative to the Houston business community, they are um, they have relatively less power. And also the pro bono legal community in Houston is very sparse. Um, at the time that I was doing work there, there was one legal aid clinic in the entire um, city of Houston, which operated downtown in a city of close to two million, and which um, not only did not do any work with employment or labor law, but also because of the federal funds that it relied on, was unable to serve any undocumented um, claimants. And so in that case, the, the kind of taken-for-granted approach of going through the formal bureaucracy um, is simply not tenable. And so as a result, what you get is the various alternatives um, that evolve in Houston to creatively enforce the rights that are present for undocumented workers. I wonder if we can just take a step back a bit before we finish up, um, which is to, to think about your book in the context of this national discussion of immigration reform going on in Washington today. What could we take from, from your conclusions about these two different places um, that, that can help inform what's currently going on at the national level? Um, are there any takeaways that, that you would say um, uh, people working on uh, comprehensive immigration reform might take into account in trying to uh, better address immigration. Um, is there any way to think of this, uh, sort of move back to that national level uh, at the conclusion? Sure. Yeah, um, I think that, um, I think two of the things that I've been in discussion with uh, my colleagues about, one is the idea of thinking beyond this legalization. Um, on the one hand, I think that it's absolutely imperative that uh, a legalization and a path to citizenship become established for all the reasons that I discussed in the book, which amplify the vulnerability of undocumented workers. But the day after you have a legalization, you're still going to have a new cohort of undocumented immigrants, no matter what reform we have. So thinking very clearly about um, what are the uh, visa possibilities um, for low-wage workers that are going to be available. And the discussions right now have that very much tied to employer demand. And um, the current estimates seem to be vastly lower than what we know the current flows of immigrants are. So we need to be thinking very hard about, um, apart from the legalization of the 11 million um, undocumented immigrants, 8 million of whom are in the labor force, what are we going to do with the future cohorts of undocumented workers? And having, um, and there's been discussion about how Hoffman is going to be uh, addressed in that context, so reinstating the remedies that are available. And the other, I think, gets back to um, the idea of these institutional inter intermediaries that I've talked about in the book. And so having large policy reforms at the federal level, I think, is imperative, but really providing resources on the ground to civil society organizations to implement those changes, um, I think, is going to be very important. And so not only in terms of helping individuals get their legal status, but also providing real hard cash resources to civil society organizations to help them access their rights. And there are discussions that are um, in the midst of heated debate about that in terms of how civil society is going to be able to help in this process. So I, I would say I would put forth those two um, realities. One, um, policy innovation does not necessarily equate with actual implementation, so we need to think hard about how that's going to work and then also um, be very future-oriented and um, think about how the next cohort of undocumented immigrants is going to fare in this new system that we put in place. There's a lot more in this book, including a really interesting chapter about the role that um, embassies and consular offices play 
But with the, in the interest of time, uh, Shannon Gleason is the author of Conflicting Commitments, The Politics of Enforcing Immigrant Worker Rights in San Jose and Houston. It's a uh, publication of ILR Press, which is an imprint of Cornell University Press. It's available uh, through the Cornell uh, website and, and elsewhere, I'm sure. Shannon, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Heath.